miss the uh, playoff games yesterday. How did the Packers do? <laughs> Just out of curiosity, really. Okay, so I was in a psychology class my freshman year in college, Eastern Illinois University, and this professor, he uh, proclaimed himself as a Christian, which was very nice. Not all the professors were, in fact. He was a Christian, but he was also a strong proponent of reincarnation. And in fact, as part of the class, our psychology class, he had a relationship with, I believe he referred to himself as a past life therapist based on reincarnation. So part of the class was that it brought the, the past life therapist in and he asked for a volunteer and, and kind of there was this meditative type kind of thing and he brought the, the student in there and, and like did some counseling to a past life. And then at the end of the classroom, or the counselor was like, now who thinks this is just a, a bunch of hogwash? And I was 18, but I was like, I just have to. I just, I mean, I just can't resist that, right? So we, we talked about and processed it. Now, someone in the class later had mentioned to the professor, being a Christian, said, by the way, you know, there's not really reincarnation in the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches. So how do you rectify and bring together that you're a Christian and a believer and, and yet still hold to reincarnation? And the professor said, well, you know what I'm really intrigued and interested by? What were the books and the teachings of Scripture that were left out? You see, his theory was that the powers that be of the church did not feel like reincarnation was a good teaching. So they wanted to remove any books or any teachings within the Gospels that we have in the Bible, remove that teaching and suppress the teaching on reincarnation. That was the first time I was like, wait, what? It, what, what does that, how, I, I don't really have an answer for that. But what, what do I do with that? What do you and I do with that? In fact, there are people that would argue that. How many of you have seen the Da Vinci Code or read the books? Quite a few of you, huh? Okay, yeah. So I remember reading the Da Vinci Code book before it was happening, and, and spoiler alert, I'm going to kind of give away the plot, but it's really old. So. so the theory is is that Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene, and that they had a child, and it's chuckle-worthy, and, and they tell the story of the reason why we don't have that is because the Council of Nicaea, right? And, and you had um, Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor who, who claimed, uh, brought uh, all the leaders of the church together, and he was like, no, this book, out. 
that book, no, 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 we don't like this. We can't control the masses with this book. And, and the history, I was going to play the videotape, uh, but I just can't take it. It's horrible history, right? I read that and saw the movie, and I was like, that's really a terrible telling of uh, the Council of Nicaea. That is not, not based on my, my, my classes in church history, that, that is not a fair or accurate uh, telling of history. And then I thought, how many people who are going to read the books and, and see the movie have had a church history class? And how will you be able, how many folks will be able to recognize that's terrible history? That's not how it went at all. I would argue that through experiences like I had in my psychology classes, maybe you have some other experiences to share through, through movies and books like The Da Vinci Code that for many of us, our confidence in the Gospels that we have, our confidence in the New Testament, or our confidence, here's another thing that I heard during college, well, you know, really, we can't be certain, and it's probably not that the Jesus of the Gospels was not the historical Jesus. Have you heard that argument before? Something different from the, the, the historical person of Jesus, if he actually existed at all. He might have been put together by early Christian leaders, right? right? That, that's not really who he was. How do we handle those questions? I would say that this is all what I would call the human side of revelation. That, that what we're, we're, we're dealing with this aspect, and, I, and I'm convinced that as Christians, we can get nervous about when we talk about the human side of revelation. We can get uncomfortable. In, in fact, we, we can start to feel our, our confidence in the text and in the scripture and in the gospel specifically. Um, it can start to wear at our, our confidence in the scriptures. But I want to suggest that this morning we need to do a lot more of this is we need to allow the scriptures to teach us about the human side of revelation. How does the scripture themselves say they were put together? How, what is, what was the role of humans, men and possibly women, in bringing together? And do we have a confidence? I'd like to suggest when we really allow the scriptures to speak to that question, our confidence is bolstered. That we go, wow, that is an accurate depiction of Jesus Christ who really lived and walked the earth. Think with me for just a moment the testimony about the first five books of Scripture that claim to be written by Moses. How did that come to Moses? Well, most of us have seen the Ten Commandments. Have most of you seen the Ten Commandments? Yeah. It's uh, worth 
I'm not going to spoil the plot. I'll leave that for you. But, right, the, the finger of God puts the Ten Commandments in stone. Jedediah talked a little bit about that last week. But also there was something called the Tent of Meetings where, where it says that Moses would actually speak to God as two friends speak together. And can you imagine Moses entering daily into that and hearing the revelation and beginning to write down what's known as the Pentateuch, the, the five books. Now, there's a different way. Think of the first king of Israel, Solomon. Um, no, he wasn't the first king. He was the third king. Think of King Solomon, right? Do you remember what King Solomon's prayer was when he was praying before God in the temple? Wisdom. He said, don't, don't give me wealth or anything else. I want wisdom. Do you know there's a whole genre or grouping of books called wisdom literature? It's believed that Solomon is the author of that, but that he doesn't represent it as going to the tent of meetings and hearing the voice of God like Moses. No, he represents it as like a philosopher at looking at life, like Proverbs, and making observations and sharing that. That was his role. See, Moses was cooperating one way. Solomon was cooperating another way. Think of some of the prophets like uh, Jeremiah. I love Jeremiah's story. You know, he's known as the weeping prophet because he was really unpopular. His prophecies were not popular at all. He kept talking about war and destruction and sin. Who likes that? And he's like, complains to God. Like, God, can you, like, do something? I'm very unpopular here. No one likes me. And then he's complaining to God, and he, and he says, if I try not to speak your word, and then he shares, his word is in my heart like a, a fire shut up in my bones. Poor Jeremiah, right? He had to speak these prophecies because the word of God was so burning in his bones. Here was an author that sometimes tried not to cooperate with God, and it didn't go well for him. What I'd like to do this morning is turn to some verses that I believe are tremendously powerful. It's a New Testament author that's sharing about his experience of how he cooperates with God in the writing of the gospel. Would you turn to the opening verses of the gospel of Luke? And Luke, perhaps he was hired, his benefactor might have been Theophilus, who is a, uh, a Roman name, he calls him most excellent Theophilus, that oftentimes folks refer to Roman officials in that way, potentially a Roman official, he might have sent this book directly to him, Theophilus might have been the one who copied the texts or created texts, but he's writing this, it says, Many have undertaken, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 1, read with me. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those 
who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Right away, Luke is saying part of the purposes is that you, Theophilus, would know the certainty of the gospels in which you've been taught. And I would say probably God was inspiring Luke so that you and I, thousands of years later, would read the gospels for the purposes of the certainty of which we've been taught. I had a professor in seminary, and he says, when I die and I'm in heaven, I'm going to search out St. Luke, if possible, and thank him for just these first couple of verses that they've added so much to his certainty. Now, notice... Notice that, that nowhere does the scriptures say that one day someone got up like Moses and he's walking along and bam, hit with this perfect book, 66 books, all together, leather bound, and he goes, thank you, Lord, that's awesome. That's not the testimony of scripture that we have. The testimony of scripture is that for some reason God chose to use human vessels. Remember the scripture from Jedediah last week that it was the will of God and yet it was these human authors carried along. They, they were people that were living in a particular time and context, and moment in life, and the Spirit of God filled them, and in different ways, we see this cooperation together with the Spirit of God of how these texts come together. Let's just take a moment and unpack these couple of verses that Luke gives us here. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account it seems apparent, as, as people have brought some textual criticism, as, as people have looked at archaeology, that people have looked at the events in history around this time, they've put together the best story that, that I think scholarship holds of how these scriptures, these gospels in particular, were, were put together. I'm going to do my best to give you the story of the Gospels being brought together, my understanding of all the scholarship behind the Gospels. We would argue that when, when Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account, he's probably talking about the Gospel of Mark. Most scholars think that Mark was the first Gospel that was written and that there was this association between Mark. Now, John Mark is in the gospel story, believe, for sure in Acts and the letters that follow, but it's believed that he was that companion 
of Peter, the, the founder of the church, the one that, that Jesus chose to build his church upon. Probably Mark is dated around early 50s or at least the early 60s. Believed in church tradition, some of the church tradition has gone into this, that, that Mark was part of the early church, a companion of Peter, especially in Rome. And as Peter would preach on a Sunday morning, the eyewitness, he would give accounts that Mark would begin to write them down. I like Mark, it's the shortest of the four Gospels, and it's the Gospel of Action, who was the apostle that was the apostle of action? That was Peter. I think it reflects a little bit the parables. The, Jesus was on the move. Jesus was healing these stories that Peter was preaching. And, and, and Mark is taking that in. And for ancient documents like the Gospels, let's say it was written in 55 AD, a mere 20 to 25 years written after the life of Jesus. Many of the apostles, many of the disciples were still alive in that moment when Peter would preach. Many would have gone, oh, I remember that. Yeah, that was awesome. And then when, when they, if they would have copied Mark's and, they, and Mark's gospel starts to circulate around the churches, many of them had gone and spread the gospel. And they, oh, when they read that, oh, I remember that. There were people still living in the moment that could testify to the accuracy of Mark. Also, I think there's a little... Easter egg in Mark that many scholars think. You know what I'm talking about, Easter egg? Marvel will we'll do this, right? They'll put a little Easter egg in there, and you'll be like, oh, that, ha that relates to, to the next one, Black Widow coming out and that, all that. Well, this is the first, or maybe at least an ancient Easter egg in here, in the Gospel of Mark. There's just this random, seemingly insignificant comment at the end of Mark 14, Jesus is arrested, and it, it says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Well, why is that in there? There's no teaching. It's just a naked guy. Why is that in there? Oftentimes, authors would build that little bit. Most scholars think that's a reference to Mark himself. That he was part and saw, maybe younger, but saw the teaching of Jesus. I wonder if they read that at the church in Rome and they're like, Mark, is that you? Oh, you got it. You saw it. Yes. Yeah. He had a little marvel in him, maybe, as he put it together. Think about the reliability of the gospel of Mark. That the, the testimony, and he was associated with Paul and Barnabas, the other uh, uh, apostles, right? It was written uh, merely 20 to 30 years after the life of Christ. There were still living eyewitnesses. It was with Peter, it was known, and that Mark was part of that story. Think how reliable and accurate we can claim the gospel of Mark to be. 
Now, when Luke says many have undertaken, we don't know for sure, but he could have been referencing the gospel of Matthew as well. So you have most of Mark word for word in both the gospels of Matthew and Luke. There's a good chance. Luke tells us he looked at other accounts, right? The, he was looking there and he builds in and he builds upon the foundation of Mark and he begins to write. And Matthew probably was written um, in the late 50s or early 60s. And church tradition holds that Matthew indeed was one of the original 12. That he sees, that he knows, and he builds much of Luke's gospel. And yet Matthew's account adds a little bit, especially to when, when um, Luke talks about fulfillment. So Matthew probably is the first gospel in our canon of scriptures because he quotes the Old Testament, I think over 60 times, depending on how you count. But he, writing probably to Jewish Christians, which were primarily the first Christians at that time, he's writing and sharing. And Matthew believes not only does he want to communicate all that Mark has in the gospel, all the, all the parables, all the miracles that Jesus does, so he brings all that, but he also brings this evidence of reliability and confidence adding to us is from all the Old Testament that was shared hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before that the life of Christ fulfills. Almost like just a slightly different witness. Would you think about it like this? If there was an accident on Lexington and Woodman, which unfortunately there often is, right? And there's people, individuals standing on each corner. And pretend Mark was on this northeast corner. He's like, oh, whoa. And then the police come and, well, what happened? And yet Matthew was on the southwest corner. He saw the same accident, but gives just a different perspective from what he saw. Mark was, well, I didn't see any blinker. Matthew, oh, I saw a blinker. Matthew is writing to Jewish Christians from this perspective, and he goes back to the Old Testament, which they know very well, and he builds that into the texts even furthermore, so especially Jewish Christians could go, wow, that's incredible. And then Luke writes, he's on another corner. It's estimated that Luke was written probably slightly after Matthew in uh, 59 to 63 uh, AD. And, and Luke brings this emphasis writing to probably Gentile Christians, especially for the poor, especially for the down and out. And he's like, ooh, I, the people need to know that Jesus came for the least of these. And in fact, it said there's some material, Luke and Matthew share most of Mark in their Gospels, but there's some material that Matthew and Luke share 
that are not in Mark. There was probably other oral traditions. There was probably other writings that they're, they're pulling from together and building and weaving in the Gospels. When Luke says, look at the word fulfilled, did you know, depending on how you count, you could put as many as 300, I just was conservative, 283 times in the New Testament, the Old Testament is quoted. I think that uh, Luke quotes the Old Testament seven times. That's not as much of an emphasis as. Do you know statistically what scholars have said is even if seven primary prophecies you could, you could go to 300, but just say seven, the, the statistical probability of one person fulfilling seven prophecies is astronomical. I could explain the statistics, but I get lost in the numbers. But, just, but again, Luke, Matthew, Mark, all sharing this kind of, they want, going back to his purposes, the certainty for us to, to share in the certainty of what we've been taught. Luke also uses, look at verse 2, he says, handed down to us, that's the traditions, well, first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke is sharing that he has probably went, there's still living eyewitnesses and servants because he's writing so close to the events of Christ that there's a good chance that Luke went and interviewed people. In fact, if you read, begin reading the gospel of Luke, you'll begin to see, boy, when he shares Mary's version of the story, Mother Mary's, and she talks about going to Elizabeth and, and John the Baptist as an infant jumping in her stomach, and then when the angel comes and she ponders this in her heart, I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if he found Mother Mary and said, could you share the story? with me. Isn't that neat to hear? Or maybe Zechariah or Elizabeth were alive and that's where we get the, the birth narratives and he shares that and he starts writing those witnesses and he brings those together, those eyewitnesses. You see, not to, so those were eyewitnesses, but he also says servants of the word. He had the apostle Paul. He probably had the remaining apostles that he could go servants of the Lord. Hey, I just want to run this by you, Peter. Is this how it Yeah, do that. No, take that away. It's interesting when the early church at the opening chapter of Acts, they lost Judas, and yet there was meant to be 12 eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Do you remember how they replace Judas? They, they draw lots, but listen to, listen to the criteria for Judas' re replacement. This is Acts 1, 21. It says, therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us for the whole time 
the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. They weren't looking for any warm body who was willing to serve. Who were they looking for? They were looking for that eyewitness. They were looking for someone who walked with Jesus, who heard Jesus, who talked with Jesus, maybe part of the 72 that were sent off by Jesus to do his work. They were going after. You see, it mattered to the early church. The testimony and the reliability, it mattered that we would know generation after generation, that the the Jesus of history, what really happened? And that that's represented to us in the Gospels that we have. And finally, Luke, he says, I want to give an orderly account. If you've got your Bibles open, flip over to chapter 3. I'm going to wrestle with these words, but I think it's important. Luke did his research. He dates when this happened. He communicates the life of Christ in real time. And he dates it in terms of Roman officials and Jewish leaders. Says verse 1, in the 15th, 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius Tetrarch of Albine, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, and the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And I can barely pronounce those words, and yet Luke, he put the time in to investigate and date and root the Gospels. And you know, scholars have studied verses like that and go, man, Luke was a phenomenal historian, incredibly accurate. I also like to mention that in Acts, so Luke was the author, the inspired author of not only the Gospel of Luke, but the second book of Acts. You can read that, and there's a part where there, it's following Paul's travels, and all of a sudden, he's telling of Paul's travels, and then he starts using the word we in the midst of that. It was called the we sections. Luke was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. Perhaps it was when Paul was in house arrest that Luke said, Paul, I feel led to to write an accurate account. I know others have done it like like Mark, and maybe he knew of of Matthew, but he brings this together, and Paul says, I bet you that's of the Lord. Go do it. Who knows? Maybe he traveled to Bethlehem and Jerusalem, but he put that together and he found the details and he put them into place. If I can just finish the story, the fourth testimony, John the Gospel, 
It's written probably the last of the four Gospels. And turn to me with me to the very end of the Gospel of John. And it's most likely that John knew of the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in circulation. And he was the one that also wrote the letters of John and Revelation. Look at the second to the last ending. It says probably maybe in parentheses, if the Greek language would have had parentheses, that the others gathered around him. This is the, the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And then John adds, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. He saw the other three Gospels and said, boy, there's so much more that could be said. And now he's probably at the end of his life, maybe 90 AD, estimated somewhere. And then John has the theological reflection of the life of Jesus. You read the prologue and you go, wow, just the brilliance of that. He is on the final corner. I want to suggest today, friends, that these four witnesses on every corner with their different ways, seeing this, we can dig in deep on the human side of Revelation and go, yes, yes, there's a confidence. If I go back to the Da Vinci Code, he was saying, ah, oh, there is a, a gospel of Mary Magdalene. And that should have been in the canon. Really? It, it's very inconsistent with the four witnesses that we have today. It was probably written in the second and third century of the church, removed from the life of Christ by hundreds of years. There was a... a, a a contrarian teaching called Gnosticism that you see the elements of this gospel was rooted and tried to teach and claim that Mary was supposed to be the founder of the church. I don't know about you. I'm going to stay with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And see, from that foundation of the gospels, the letters are based on that. And from that, just adding to Jedediah's uh, uh, message last week, the foundation of resting and wrestling with the truth of those letters against the foundation of the life of Christ, the historical life rooted and dated and given by eyewitnesses. I think, friends, Luke did a phenomenal job in cooperating with the Spirit that when we really dig in, we can feel a confidence and a certainty that the Spirit of God was not only working in Christ and the early church, but working in the human beings that he breathed on to bring together the testimony of the scriptures that we now have. But I want to suggest there's another question 
that's almost as crucial. And that question is, you can believe in the reliability of the Gospels and that they're accurate. But there's another question. Are you going to obey them? I think it was Mark Twain that said this, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand that bother me. I want to suggest, friends, it's not enough to believe the scriptures are accurate and reliable and revelation from the God, from God. The second part of the crucial part, second part of that is, will we obey? Will we study? Will we seek that our lives would match the revelation of the Lord. I want to suggest that we would approach the scriptures in the same way that Luke approached writing his gospel. The first way that sticks out to me is the diligence in which Luke shares, the carefully investigated. Did you catch that phrase? I carefully investigated. He said, I gave an orderly account. We're, remember, we started this series with Deuteronomy that says, be careful to obey all the commands. Put them on your forehead and your arm. Like, get focused. Be diligent. Handle the word of God. In fact, that is given all through the scriptures saying, this is the revelation of God. Be careful to obey. Listen to uh, Joshua. Keep the book of the law. Remember, they're just about to go to the promised land. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Friends, this admonition of Joshua and Deuteronomy and Luke, does that match how you are presently handling the word of God? Are you bringing, are you being mindful of the sense of focus and priority and diligence? Friends, you know, we, through our history, have been known, Christians have been known as the people of the book. The people of the book are we known with our friends and family as people of the book? Are we reading it daily? Are we discussing it? Are we memorizing? Are we meditating? Are we praying the words of Scripture? In this series, I want to employ one of my spiritual gifts. It's my, the, my kid's least favorite of my spiritual gifts. It is the spiritual gift of Annoyance. Uh, what did I, I said that wrong? Perseverance. And uh, yes, persistence. Persistence, friends. How many of you have brought your scriptures with you today? Can I just see how many scriptures do we have out there? There's a good, good number of you. 
I would love for that to be 100%. Yes, your phone counts. I get it. I get it. But I would love for you to bring the real deal with a, with a pencil and a highlighter and, 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 and putting question marks there and writing and, and you're, you're getting into it. You're getting your hands on it. You're, you're entering in. Would you bring, if you don't have a modern translation, we're going to talk about translations, would you buy a modern translation? All right, we most of the time use NIV. All right, we'll talk about that. But would you buy it? And get into it. Enter in. Allow the scripture as we get into scriptures so the scriptures get into us. Diligence. Amen. Yes, that deserves an amen. And also second, this humility. Did you get that from Luke? I do. Most excellent. Theophilus. There's a a humility, a kindness a thoughtfulness. I believe that we should start and enter with a humility. I'm going to introduce you to a Latin phrase that I think is helpful. Prima scriptura. Prima means first, above all. And of course, scriptura is scripture. You might know sola scriptura. I would argue that they're very close. They mean very similar things, and when the reformers were using sola scriptura, they were really meaning uh, prima scriptura, but, but don't get lost in that. Think about this. How do you decide what's right and wrong? What are the sources of authority that help you decide what is right and wrong? So if we go to, we have a little matrix that we've developed up here, uh, a, a little life shape. And let's start from the bottom left. Oftentimes it's our friends and families, especially our parents, that, that tell us and teach us right and wrong, and, and we take that. Oftentimes experience, right, blends in, and, and we have an experience that teaches us a little bit about the world and how we see it and understand it. For many of us, reason or philosophical reflection is super important. For many of us, science is important. For many of us, the voice of the Spirit. All of these, I would argue, are really important sources of authority and help us understand who we are, what this world is about. And I would suggest, when you, when you think of prima scriptura, scriptura, that scripture is on the center. That yes, these are sources of how we understand the world, but are we willing to allow scripture to be our final rule of life and faith? I've heard leaders, pastors debating things and they've made comments. I'm not gonna name names. I could show a video, but I'm not gonna do that. And they said, yeah, I heard this person's testimony right in front of me in flesh and blood. And, and I've got these letters written 2,000 years ago. I'm going to choose the person. I get it. I understand. Sometimes it's hard. 
But as Christians, I believe we have to choose the revelation of God, even when we don't get it, even when our loved ones are involved and and making choices and living life in ways that's inconsistent with Scripture. Can we go back to reincarnation? I kind of like reincarnation. The idea that, you know, we've evolved, right? I'm a little bit past a a chicken. I've made it, right? Or, Or if I mess up, I might be set back, but I get another opportunity. That's kind of cool. Let's go with reincarnation. In fact, I have an extended family member who's a new ager, and they love re- reincarnation. And it makes, in terms of reason, it makes sense to me. It's, it could be how the next week, Christianity and reincarnation. Let's go for it. Why do I not believe in reincarnation? Because Scripture teaches something very, very different that we're given one life to live. Let's get real practical. Sexuality. Our sexual identity. Our sexual preference. That's why we're doing Christian sexuality in our youth group and with adults. We're saying, yes, our experience matters. Our our, our loved ones matter. Our, Our friends and family matter. Reason, science matter. But we're trying to study the revelation of Scripture. And let that be our final rule of life and faith. What does scripture say about forgiveness and love of your enemy? Yes, but you don't know the experience I had and the hate that I have. I get it. Hard to let go. What scripture say? What about materialism and wealth? Man, cars are so cool. I love cars. What does scripture say about how we handle and be good stewards? And finally this, with the Spirit, just as Luke was inspired and filled and directed and guided So that's how we are to read the pages of Scripture. They have been inspired by the Spirit from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end. And they are living and active. We're going to talk about that. And they fill. Listen to Jesus' words. John 6, 63, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. And friends, I promise you, maybe not all of you have had this experience, but I promise you, if you start getting your nose in the pages of Scripture, if you start reading I promise you, because this is what the Lord says, the Spirit of God will fill that text and fill your heart and soul. And you'll go, oh, wow.
want to invite the worship team forward. And would you pray with me? So Lord, we are so thankful that you, you saw fit that we could have the certainty, just as I just imagine Theophilus, the, the Roman official, receiving this and understanding the, the eyewitness accounts, understanding Luke's orderly writing and investigation, understanding and being filled with certainty and faith that this Jesus of the Gospels really lived and really ministered. And as the Jesus that speaks to us now, especially through the pages of Scripture. So Lord, fill us with that certainty. Lord, fill us with that passion, Lord. Lord, would you help us to be a people of the book would you help us to be a people who, yes, listens to our loved ones, yes, thinks, studies, looks at history and tradition, and reason and philosophy and science, yes, values all those, but we allow your revelation, your very words given to us through so many like Moses and Solomon, Jeremiah and Luke. Lord, would we place the priority and the focus on your word?